when you're building the product from scratch, you listen to what the customers need. You say, yep, I'll go do that. You disappear for six months, you build it, and you say, yeah, got it. Now, like, multiply that. I've got 20 customers that all want different things and are coming to you. And you're saying, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, I'll do that. And you're one engineer and you're one product guy. And by the way, you're the guy doing the sales. So who's bringing in new business? And Alan just saw that. And he was like, it was just running away. Hello, and welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast. On this show, we bring you interviews with leading executives at today's rapidly growing B2B tech companies. We dissect the stories, strategies, and journey of CEOs, COOs, CMOs, and more as they share their professional journey. Tune in each week for new episodes from today's leaders. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B tech companies build and run revenue-generating podcasts. We set you up with weekly interviews with your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up and have engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Learn more about launching your podcast at contentallies.com. This episode is brought to you by Ad One Zero, where we do lead to close sales execution for B2B services companies with a technology flair. If you're looking to scale your company from six figures to seven figures of revenue, talk to Ad One Zero. Hey, B2B leaders, this is Ledge, your co host here. I'm a managing partner of Ad One Zero. Super stoked to have our guest today. Vivek Kartha, he's the CEO of Workspace. Vivek, for those who don't know you in the audience as well as I do, uh, maybe give an introduction and hello and then you know talk about what you do and, and what you and the company are up to. Yeah, happy to, Ledge, and, and thanks for having me on. I'm Vivek. As Ledge said, I'm the CEO of Workspace. We are a software product based out of Orange County, California, which is great this time of year. I'm from Chicago, so it's nice to be in the warm weather, we are really building software for the commercial real estate space. So this massive space out there, archaic technology, billions and billions of dollars of capital. And we're trying to help make day-to-day life easier for the people that manage that real estate. Whether you're a property manager, you're a custodian, you manage parking meters, you buy the building, we have sort of integrated software that serves that entire community and tries to simplify life, which can be really manual and difficult sometimes. Yeah, there must be like a million janky legacy point solutions slash probably just a lot of spreadsheets. <laughs> for Tons, Yeah, we, we talk about seas and oceans of spreadsheets all the time mm-hmm. with some of our customers and, and full-time teams that are just borrowing in spreadsheets. Hey, you must have some people that are still on paper. So yeah, one of our new products, without getting too into it, is just stopping people from having to print, copy, and physically sign and mail checks. And if you think about a building and all the things they go through, that that process takes hours and hours and hours a month. And it's just, and here I am paying people to Venmo. So there's a lot to (laughs) There is a lot to to do there. And I I have to ask, I mean, commercial real estate, this is being recorded early 2021. So uh, it's been been a hell of a ride the last year. There's a whole lot of empty space, I guess, getting managed now. And uh, what are you hearing from the, the space and the clients you know, there. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question and one um, one we hear all the time. You know, commercial real estate as this monolith has had a tough year. There's no question about that. People have always thought about commercial real estate as an alternative. So when the you know economy suffers in 2008, yes, residential was hurt, but real estate was always a good investment. Invest in urban, invest in offices. 
And this has been the first time, at least in, in modern memory, that it hasn't been that bellwether. Here's, here's what we've seen. There are some types of commercial real estate which continue to be extremely valuable. Think about Amazon and Walmarts in the world growing and growing even through this pandemic. Well, logistics and industrial is as hot as ever and hotter. Multifamily people living in housing, the needs from those people from their homes. Now they're working at home. You might have two people working at home. You might have kids taking school at home. So that space, that space has blown up. What's been heard is, you know, people aren't going to offices. Offices are generally long-term investments. So, hey, it's a bad year or two, but we're hoping we, we come out of that later in this year. And then the big one, the big one that has been hit that people sort of think is this acceleration of what's been going on is retail. So, you know, online retail has gone up six or seven points in the last year as a percent of total retail. Physical storefronts, especially ones in commercial areas and metros, they're hammered. You can't evict the tenants because if you do, who's who's coming in to take those leases? So all, all of that is going to play out. And I think this has been a rapid acceleration in you know, kind of the, the downfall of traditional retail that we've seen. Now, I think it will bounce back to some degree, but that one I think is a trend we'll see for, for a long time to come. It's certainly a place where people are going to start to think about reuse and different, you know, innovative 100%. ways. To, you know, I don't think we're going to like as a human race not need space for different things we need we need you know pieces of floor with roof over it to do everything you know now you might have a different purpose or you know reallocation of those those resources but uh you know i i don't know i don't think it's no it's not the apocalypse for yeah you know these types of i mean we're always going to have cars driving down the street and need to access something in the the storefront but it yeah it's it's a massive push and uh clearly a change in the economy that has been accelerated and it's a great opportunity there's there's all kinds of new stuff that that's going to happen and you know most of the the greatest companies in the world started you know recessions depressions etc so you know uh, along those lines with the benefit of now you know having had your path to get to you know you're in a, running a SaaS company talk how you you got there what's been unique and interesting you know, kind of about that and, and the lessons that you learned before, maybe that you are applying now when you have your own team and, you know, all that stuff. It's just, uh, I guess, yeah, what have you learned and, and what kind of have you brought along the way, regardless of the weirdness of the world right now? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And, and I'll, I'll go back to one point you mentioned quickly that opportunity exists now. I totally, totally believe that, whether it's for our firm, the firms we serve, it's like the people that can respond nimbly and flexibly are going to come out of this thing better than they were before. And I, I totally buy that, um, that these just, just in all things in life, flexibility generally leads to better outcomes. Yeah, I, I have a, you know, a, a journey or a personal journey that was all over the place. I've worked in Fortune 100 companies. I've worked in large professional services and investment banks. I've worked at startups. I've worked at incubation startups within Fortune 100 companies. And now I'm running a, a 20, 25 person SaaS business. So kind of been all over the place. One sort of common tenant that I've seen across all the teams I've worked in, which I, I brought to Workspace when I when I got here you know, almost I mean, a year and a half ago now, this idea, I think Reed Hastings at Netflix named it well, talent density. The idea that we, we can't get anything done as a team until we've got people that are motivated to do the job at the ha hand uh, people that can trust one another and a high a high quality team. And I really leaned into that almost to the extreme when I got here, which was 
understanding who we had and where we wanted to go and making sure everyone on the team was ready to row in the same direction. I spent probably six or seven months hiring. <laughs> That's yeah. what I did here. And I think the multiplicative benefits of doing that, now you start to see people can run with ideas themselves. There's self-innovation happening in the team. There's a different kind of energy. I think it all starts with people. Business is, an, is much more than just an idea or a piece of product. So that's been common throughout everything I've seen and gone through. And so you probably had to address um, attrition and potentially involuntary attrition. And six or seven months of hiring means a lot of, I don't know, you know, uncertainty for the people around you. Like there's a lot of unbuilding before that type of culture building then. Yeah. So I think that's, I think that's right. So something we all, you know, we, we stress and I stress certainly with the entire leadership team is that there are a lot of roles for our company today and there were going to be roles in the future. We plan to grow the business and we think we're in a, in a fast moving and attractive space. What wasn't true is that we were going to inherit the promises made to people about what their job was going to look like from a different team. So when I got here, we level set with everyone and said, hey, we are going to be a fast paced startup. We are going to have lumpy work cycles. We're going to have days where we mess around and joke around as a team at noon on a Friday. And we're going to have Saturdays where that big customer needs something and we're going to step up. And if, if that sort of vibe gets you going, you've got a job here. There's That was not to be debated. If it doesn't, if there's a different sort of culture or setup that works better for you, personally, professionally, whatever, like this is not a you're out of here now. Let's talk about what that off-ramp looks like. Let's talk about what looks better for you. Let's be a good reference and help find that thing. But no one's going to be happy if we close our eyes and just pretend that, you know, that culture mismatch was going to was going to make anyone happier. So we were just really honest with people up front, treated people like adults, and, um, and we retained everybody. Honestly, everybody we wanted to retain, we retained. So I don't know. You know, I think a big lesson for you is just like we can be honest with people uh-huh. and uh, and get great outcomes. So you like could facilitate an honest conversation where people could self-select. Yeah. Into yeah. It. I think we, you sort of like laid out very clearly, here's what our culture is going to look and feel like. If you don't like that, we get it. Like I, I've worked in places that I haven't enjoyed personally myself Yeah, a lot. <laughs> I left those places <laughs> voluntarily and uh, that's okay. And we sort of destigmatized that. We, we made it easy for people to leave. We, um, we were, you know, referencers to them wherever they went. We gave them great severance packages. We just said, this is a, you know, this is a change and like we're supporting you no matter which way you want to go. So, okay. So six to seven months of doing this to prepare a company for growth, like clearly you have effective financing. So, you know, I mean, this is not a thing that, that everybody can do, you know, when their hair is on fire and founding, you know, a business. So, you know, what's the nature of, of that piece of the business? Because, you know, we want to set, talk about level setting, right? You know, if you're a founder, listening here and you don't have financing in place, probably don't spend six or seven months on, on this stuff, <laughs> you know, figure something else out. So, yeah. So I think that's a great question. And I, and I would sort of say two, um, two things. If you are a founder and you're out there listening, what I think the message of my story is really be intentional with your hires when you make them. So again, we inherited a team with two cultures, the group that wanted to be part of this fast moving startup thing and the group, you know, a group that didn't. And if we had been more intentional from the get-go, that would have never been a problem. So I think part of this is like a save yourself a pricey reset <laughs> and a costly <laughs> reset from time, resources, emotions, 
and just be really, really deliberate about who you hire from the ground up, whether it's a support rep answering calls or your CTO, like that, that matters. And those, you want those people to be with you for the long haul if they, um, if they're oriented right. So ideally we wouldn't have had to do that. <laughs> so right. It's like boring. sort of do it right the first time because you don't really yeah. want to do it again. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 And it's costly as hell to do it again. It is. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's one. The, the second is the key to doing that is being really honest with people about what they're signing up for. So we had a lot of people that we inherited that were like, you know, we were told X, Y, and Z about the business. We didn't really understand the situation. We thought the product was further along. We cut all of that crap out. When we were hiring people and interviewing, we're like, here's the deal. Talk to everybody on the team. Figure out what you're getting yourself into. And if you're still pumped, this is going to be great. The third one is to, to directly answer your question. Well, given that situation, how do we get through that half year? We took on a growth investment from a long-term firm called Alpine Investors uh, in California. They invested in SaaS businesses that focus on verticals. Free shout out if you're a founder and you're looking for a capital partner, they're terrific. So th they invested in our business, but their goal is not to fund, they're not venture capital. So they don't fund unprofitable businesses. So we were building a scalable business that entire time, keeping our customers happy, collecting revenue and staying profitable. We also just knew that if we were going to hit a five-year plan, a one-year plan, a one-quarter plan, we needed a big shakeup of the team. Right. Yeah. So was it the characterization of your role in that in that way was like turnaround or, you know, next stage growth kind of thing? Or like what what did that look like, you know, from the entrance standpoint? Yeah, uh, very much next stage of growth. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have a, a founder, Alan, have a great relationship Alan is the guy that built the backbone of workspace in a garage. That's literally right. the story. His girlfriend was a property manager. She was stamping leases. She <laughs> wanted to go see a movie. He was annoyed she couldn't go see the movie. And he spent a few months coding. Like that, that's how workspace started. Literally. As exactly many like good that. startups. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I just want to get a, I just want to get a drink with my girlfriend. <laughs> a reasonable request. So, and Alan was amazing at that. Like he built, this business out of nothing, he got it from zero to somewhere. He landed the first few big customers and he, you know, he built the product himself. So like that was the business we inherited was this thing built by an entrepreneurial founder who was technical in nature that had gotten some early product traction. The thing it didn't have is we, we didn't really have the line of sight into what happens after those first few customers. How do you take that extremely hands-on founder-led approach like months and months, years of courting one deal right. to convert it, which many of you listening, you know that game well. I know that game. Yeah. You, you, you can't do that for 100 customers. It doesn't work. You've got to yeah. bring people on, teach people the ropes, empower other people. We got to a place where our head of CS, our head of support, our head of Eng, our head of BD, our chief revenue officer was one guy. <laughs> <laughs> you like, it just, it didn't work anymore. So I know those companies. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. right. Like, which um, hat do you so, want to take off first? Because you're going to have to take yeah. off six of them. Yeah, yeah that, that's exactly that's exactly what we did. So my role was just kind of say, hey, Alan, here, here's an out. You are a great engineering founder. Let's create a role for you where you can do innovation and R&D and tech. But you don't enjoy doing this other stuff. Let me take it on and let's start building a team that can handle not just 20 large clients, but... 40 and then 60 and more. And the current model just was, was way too individual intensive. And he was receptive to that. Like that was a good thing. He, yeah, He was. And, that, and that's, I mean, that's huge, know. right? Cause you don't see that every time. Like, and I, and I think like if you're the type of founder listening 
like where maybe you could do that self-assessment. Like, am I wearing all the hats and do I hate some of them? And by doing that and trying to maintain control of those things, am I hampering the growth of the company, even the success of the company? You're probably going to fail, not just not grow, but you, when you're plateaued there, you're probably going to break after. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's exactly what we saw. And it's a great call out. So Alan, self-aware as he was, realized that the way he landed the first few big wins was kind of destined to bury him over time. So when you're building the product from scratch, you listen to what the customers need. You say, yep, I'll go do that. You disappear for six months, you build it, and you say, yeah, got it. Now, like, multiply that. So from three to 10, from 10 to 20. I've got 20 customers that all want different things and are coming to you. And you're saying, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, I'll do that. And you're one engineer and you're one product guy. And by the way, you're the guy doing the sales. So who's bringing in new business? And Alan just saw that. And he was like, you know, that it was just running away. And um, have the have the well, and the product will run away too because now you have this hodgepodge disaster of what twenty people wanted, and there's no consistency. It's not and, a product, oh, okay. you know. We, you're just you're just duct taping stuff on the edges every day, and it starts to be unstable, and it crashes, and yeah, it's yeah, huge. Totally. And, and for the people in software or tech businesses out there, there are, there were a lot of signs. So we started seeing our engineers, the lifeblood of an early stage business. They were maintenance engineers. We were hiring amazing talent. People, frankly, pulling in salaries that they demanded and deserved that were capable. They'd worked at some of the best firms out there, Google and Microsoft in their past. They were great engineers and they were doing maintenance, like wrote maintenance because they were just keeping up with um, the backlog of support that was coming in from these customers. So we just saw things that were like, this doesn't make sense. We shouldn't have this talented guy working on adding a user. Why is that the case? And you, those things snowballed and you realize, well, you can't work on a new product and and you know, we, we saw that train coming our way. Luckily, Alan saw that. It went to people that had experience building businesses and teams and could take off the hats that he didn't enjoy. And the other thing was that you know, he was never happy when he was managing large teams. You know, he wanted to be out there crushing code, writing product, and you know, talking to customers. And he was so far away from that. There's gotta be so many technical founders that hear this are just resonating, you know. So what a what do they do? Because I mean, maybe I don't know if you guys knew each other or he got in touch with the right people, but like maybe we well, don't know what to do and, and you're drowning and you hate your own business, but like, you know, it could be a thing. I've been there, you know, but, but what, what's the path, the right thing to do there to find the dude like you, who's going to come in and, uh, you know, try to help. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a great question. I think the, the first thing is totally like acknowledging that that process is going to be hard and painful for you when this is your baby. So yeah, Alan and I have talked about this a little bit. Um, and it's, it's just fun for me to hear, like, what's all the stuff he saw me doing where he's like, that's not going to work or that's stupid. And then when you start realizing that some of the stuff I did, did work. And then like, how did that change his point of view? So there's a little bit of like that faith that if you're going to step away, people are going to do things differently. Some things will mess up. Some things won't. And you're going to have to be okay with that. And if you're not, no one you bring in is going to like solve the problem. So that's one. And I, I think Al and I were super close in that. I would run ideas by him. He'd be like, I don't think that's going to work. And I had the freedom to say, I think it might. And sometimes I was wrong, <laughs> but we learn quick and we move fast. The second one is, you know, what he brought me in to do. It was like, or what, and what, you know, our investor really brought me in to do was exactly the thing Alan didn't want to. So it, it worked out well that like everyone's interests were mutually aligned. And I'll say, Unlike many of the folks listening to this, 
Alan leaned on his capital partner. So the way this sort of worked was he realized he wasn't going to be able to get out of this thing himself. And, you know, he wasn't going to give him any joy getting to the next stage. He wanted to, frankly, get take some money off the table, which I think is completely reasonable, and said, if both of those things are true, I spent 10 years building this thing, I'm not the person to lead the business ops. Is there someone that can come in, add some capital, take some of my skin out of the game, and also has way denser talent networks to help me find the person? And he talked to a lot of people. He talked to a lot of potential partners. I started as the president at Workspace. And we hit it off and we, you know, we had a very mutual philosophy on how we wanted to take the business forward. So he was, you know, very intentional about that. But all of those decisions are super hard at the time. Like, I want all the upside. Well, you're gonna have to let go of some of that. I want to have all the decision making. You're gonna have to let go of some of that. And if that if that's not interesting, then like it's not gonna work. No, actually like Props to him. I, I I love this like the Alan story that I, I've never met Alan, but you know, I like to to put the time and and have the foresight even to do that. It's it's like gut wrenching work and do all those other jobs at the same time. I mean, I'm just imagining like the emotional, you know, just frazzledness that would would come out of doing that. So like you know, props to him, and maybe we should have him tell his story too because that's neat that. That you guys got hooked up that way. Yeah, he's a he's a secretive guy, so he'll he'll never be on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Well, he'll be happy you told his uh, um, biography for yeah, him. So. I think another sign too was like, if you feel like frazzled as a founder, it's really either there's two things happening. You're either the best actor on earth, you're George Clooney or something, and none of your team can feel that. What's much more likely is everyone else is feeling that whiplash effect, and they're all frazzled, and that's what we saw. We got in here and we're like holy shit, one guy is doing everything. How does that make everyone else on the team feel? And they were all like, holy shit, every day there's a different fire. And so like that pervades the org and you talk to people, they're disrupted. And so, you know, that, I think there's a lesson that like how the founder is feeling is usually reflected in the rest of the team and the business. And when you start seeing those signs and, and you ask people what they're working on and they're stressed out and they can't work on the things that they were brought in to do, like there are so many leading indicators that I think, you know, when, when Alpine and I got into the business, it threw all that in sharp relief and it really made it easy for, you know, our founders to step back and be like, whoa, I wish I had done this sooner. I didn't know that I was burning out my yeah. people. It's like, uh, and I, I have to think like that's, I can hear the consultant, you know, in your history because it's like the third party view is just necessary sometimes. You just can't see it in yourself and in your own thing, you're too close to it. You built it. You're involved every day. And to have those third-party aha moments, super valuable. Now, there's also a lot of, you know, snake oil and crap <laughs> to bring in third parties that you have to watch out for. But yeah, I, I resonate with that. I mean, we do the same thing with, with revenue systems and people in, in, in sales orgs and, and marketing and you know, all the things that are just sort of like, there's no way that could work. Like, how are you doing that? You know, and oh, uh, well... I don't know. We never thought of that. And, but if they were advising somebody else, they'd be like, that's not right. You know, and I think it's just that third party viewpoint that uh, you can accomplish with advisors or, or a mentor group or, you know, reaching out to a, a financing partner, but, but do it because by being a hermit and, you know, just sort of dying in your own little hole in your business, like that's not going to suit anybody. Yeah. I, th I think that's right. And the, the other thing is like, it's all an option. So, 
like reaching out and talking to a bunch of advisors or potential financial partners, you don't have to take anything from them if you don't want to. But like that first conversation might teach you something. Maybe teaches you they're a bad partner. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe it gives you an idea and you still don't want to partner with them. Like that's, those are all fine. And you probably- Yeah, like use the discernment that got you that far oh. because there's also mentor whiplash, you know, where like you're going to get a hundred opinions about what you should do, none of which are commensurate. Like, and so you got to have like that idea that, you know, what works what might at least work and, you know, make people prove that out. And and I like that you said, you know, like it took building that affinity together. Trust is such a real thing. You can't just hire, how many, how many times do you hear this story of like hire a VP of sales, hire a CEO, it's just some outsider with a, a resume and, you know, and it's just like, boom, it crashes and burns and you can't do that either. Yeah. You know, something we, we always talk about, people do reference checks on employees and potential hires, they don't do them for partners, capital partners, advisors. And so, yeah, I, like if you're oh my working gosh, with I'm someone back to my old self, yeah, and I'm like, man, like, I could have saved some pain. Yeah. Like someone's going to invest in your baby. How are you not going to talk to a bunch of other founders and find out what it was actually like? Like you got to do that. And so the same amount of diligence you would put in making that, you know, VP of sales hire, you would put in taking out an advisor because you want to get shitty advice. <laughs> yeah. You mean there's bad advice? <laughs> yeah, a lot of it. <laughs> yeah, and it's, you know, I think like people take a lot of generic startup advice that isn't just appropriate in context. So it isn't like there are not successful people that are, you know, generally like just complete idiots, but they may have, you know, applied their learnings and the things they did and, and think that it applies to you because that's what they did, but it doesn't. Like it's a context with a million variables. If if it wasn't, somebody would have the equation to actually do this right and would have 100% success rate and be obscenely rich. And in fact, it's very much the opposite of that, that you know, less than 10% success rate is considered good. It's, it's worse than baseball. Yeah, I think I, that's totally right. And something something I always think about, I, I got this uh, story from a book called Thinking in Bets. And it, it was sort of about life isn't chess. So chess is a game where you know every move, you see every move from the opponent, pieces can only move a certain way. There's perfect information. Business is like poker, you can do all the right things and lose. You can do the wrong things and win. But what gets you there is recognizing time over time, intuition building, pattern seeing. And the same patterns that got you to build your business to where it is are going to help you going forward. So it's not a time to throw that out and be like, this person's offering me a check. They must be a great partner. <laughs> it's like keep applying that intuition you've built over a long time at everything you do and, and things will work out. But sometimes we'll make mistakes. <laughs> yeah, you will. And becoming aware of what intuition feels like, you know, like it's sort of like this gut thing that people kind of go, oh, you shouldn't go by your gut. You know, you need data. And I usually argue if you've been doing this long enough, it is data. You just can't put it in a spreadsheet. And you kind of just recognize the pattern, but you don't know why. And that's the gut feel. Like something feels out of kilter. Something feels incorrect. And also surround yourself with good people who like maybe they have a better, you know, internal discernment algorithm. It's like I'm I'm one like I like everybody. Like I'll be your best friend like immediately. Like, dude, you want to do business? All right. You know, and that's horrible. So I have partners and mentors who can like backstop me 
and go, maybe you should check on, and what about this? And I didn't feel good about that. And so, you know, it's surrounding yourself with like people that don't think like you, I think is so important. Yeah, I, I totally think that's right. And, you know, intuition isn't perfect. It reflects a lot of our biases and yeah, have good friends around you. Where are you going to take all this? You know, it's like, ultimately, like, that's cool because we just talked about all kinds of human stuff and, you know, life learnings and all that. And now you're going to work as a, a CEO and like execute, you know, so, so what's next? Like, how does that move forward and become like actual tactical things that people do? Yeah. It's a, it's a great question and, and it, it definitely is going to consume most of our year this year. So, you know, one thing I, I noticed, and this might sound obvious to a lot of you out there, and maybe a lot of you learned this yourself, like there is such a benefit to simplify the clarity when you're running a business. And so, you know, as a founder, a CEO, a CXO, you know, all the real complexity, you know, the millions of things that are coming up, you know, that customer renewal, you know, the product is behind, you know, all this stuff. But for a team, it's like the simpler you can make the message for what the quarter, half, and year looks like, the more likely people are going to buy in. And we'll, we'll deal with this stuff as it comes up. It's a startup. Shit happens. And so what, what last year really allowed our team to do is clarify what are the big goals for this year we need to execute against. And there is no ambiguity on any of our teams for what we need to get done. We've got three products at three different stages that need different work done on each. And all the teams are lined up to know where they're slotted and what they got to get done. And so with that clarity, like execution sort of becomes a little bit of a project management exercise. Everyone is empowered to know what they need to contribute to each of those three products. We check in. I don't need to hear red, green, yellow. I need to, you to tell me what the risks are, where you're tripped up, and we'll solve it together. But like the execution for the next half year is decided. It was decided last year. And so, like, we we just tried to make that as clear as possible with our team. And it's like, we're constantly evolving. We're not, I'm, and we are not perfect. But we, you know, I, I learned a lot in trying to get that as simple as possible and clarify with people and be like, you know, what did you work on the last few days? If it's something that's not one of those three products or not one of our goals, you're sort of like, well, you know, was that the right place to spend time? And it just gives us a really, real easy rubric for us all to ask ourselves, are we spending time in the right places? And how, how do you map every individual task, you know, up to like three simple things? Like, I mean, you know, it, there are 20 people around a table are going to have reasons that the thing they spent the last day on, oh, no, it did fit. You know, that, that was the right thing to be doing because I have different perspectives, you know. So I just wonder, like, how do you how do you make ultimately the judgment of what is or is not valuable to fit? Yeah, there's a, there are a bunch of different valid management philosophies on how to do this. Like I've seen the COO type mind that like every task is detailed out. There's like an Asana board with a million things. You maps to one and maps to another, maps to another. Like people, some people think that way. Like uh, I do not. <laughs> and so for me, one, that's stressful. Two, it sort of chokes a little innovation for people downstream. And so my, my thing is always like, I'm going to provide context and help you think through why you're doing something. But I expect the team to sort of bring the execution mentality to those tasks. So the, really the way we've done it is we don't ask for everyone to map every hour of their day to something. We just ask that you exercise good judgment that when we talk about it, we can course correct quickly. So does the fact that you spent, I don't know, a ton of hours on that side project that's not helping the success of those three products, like why was that a good thing to do? And sometimes people have a good reason. 
and sometimes they don't. And we say, as long as we're checking in frequently enough and they can build their own judgment, we're going to be way better off three months from now than if I micromanage to hell, then like I'm repeating the founder problem. I'm just so involved in everything that it's not going to happen unless I'm there. And then like, we're screwed. So you, it's, it's really the judgment process that you're trying to instill and teach that, you know, how do I know yeah. I'm doing a thing that's aligned or not? And yes. did I, did I take the time to think and evaluate before I wasted eight hours chasing feature X that like, wait, this doesn't, if I were to do that, would it fit? You know? So it's like means ends sort of analysis. And that's not, necessarily baked into every type of job you know a, a engineer doesn't always think that way uh, a hyper-focused brand marketer would not necessarily think mm -hmm. that way they would have different contexts and different timelines in mind yeah and so we you know we i take that as a role of mine and the culture we're building that that's sort of the um that's sort of the lean we're having everyone take to what they work on so if you want, you know, if you want to be in a high control environment where your tasks are broken up and they're given to you on a sheet, workspace is not going to be a super comfortable place. And there are those places and there are those places that are successful. <laughs> like that's just yeah. not going to work. And so we are willing to tolerate the messiness of building common judgment across our team. And it's messy. It takes time You have to train people. Sometimes you miss. I have communication errors where I thought I was being super clear and turns out I'm not and I was wrong. And so there's a lot of there's a lot of that. But I think that leads to, if we're trying to build a sustainable company with the people we've got, a much better outcome several months from now. And I always try to say, like, is the, is the bet we're making or the thing we do, we're doing going to break the company? If we are a half week late on that feature ad because our engineer or product team tried something new out, is that breaking the company? And if not, I like can't obsess over the fact that they made a bad call in judgment. Now, if I give something to someone that can break the company, that's my fault. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well said. Well said. This is like, you know, you can limit your exposure to the risk of allowing your, you know, incremental pieces to be learning experiences. Yeah. And experience is a hell of a good learner. And if, you know, that half day or half week for delay in that feature release means we lose a customer, like that engineer is not going to make that mistake again. And we're all going to suffer. Like people know the stakes. So, I, we definitely lean on context and judgment over um, over control, but yeah, that's a, you know, that's a choice we made. It's like how many like how many zeros are attached to the mistake I'm about to make, you know? Yeah. And, and can I recognize that ahead of time because I already made a a six digit error, you know, earlier in my career or or tenure, <laughs> yeah. you know? So now now I could just make five and four digit errors and you know, it's like limit the exposure of my. Uh, my ineptitude. Yeah. I'll, I'll add one to like to the, to the founder team and the, the CEO team that's listening out there. Like this, and this was hard for me and, and a great piece of feedback I got from my team. So I, I try and ask people and you know, all the people that report to me, like, where did I mess up last month? I know I did. So just tell me. And one, one piece of feedback I got that is, that was great was, you know, and all you CEOs and founders are like this, your clock speed is so high that when you make a mistake, you process it, you learn from it, and you move on like that. Like that thing happened. What doesn't happen is you don't recognize that with the team, tell them what you learned. So it always appears like when you make a mistake, you're cycling through it, you got it, you're moving on, but you're never being like, hey guys, I did this thing. Here's why I did it. It didn't work out. And guess what? It was good because I course corrected after two weeks. 
not two years. And like sharing that with the team is totally destigmatize that idea that if you apply judgment and make sure there aren't too many zeros attached to a potential mistake, like sharing it is better for everyone and we move faster. But I think I was criminal, you know, um, criminally accused of and was right was like, I just did that all myself and kept it to myself. And then on from the outside, people are looking at you as their CEO or founder and they're like, this guy or girl is just, you know, Superman or Superwoman and just cycling through things all the time. And meanwhile, they're asking us to come clean about mistakes and to look at the things we did and to apply judgment. And you just got to share more than you think, honestly. That, um, sort of yeah, you can, oh, you can never be too transparent with that like self-learning process. And it gives permission to not hide it. Totally. It's like, you can just like look like you were hiding and you didn't even think of that. That's exactly know? what so, was happening to me. I was like, I'm, yeah. I am messed up all the time, guys. Why do you think that I would feel that way? And then they're like, yeah, but you never, you never tell us what you messed up. You don't after action review your own totally screw up. So yeah, I, I, I totally feel you. I've done some things in our business where I'll have to be like, so I had this idea and I was really adamant about it and I implemented it and it turns out that it's like awful and it's taken me a month to unwind the complete disaster that I'm really sorry I was adamant about. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Those things can be, I mean, they're like ego bruising, but uh, talk about another lesson. Like if you want to maintain a shiny ego, I think this CEO founder thing is uh, is a tough game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good that's a good finish. All right, Vivek, man, awesome stuff. Uh, if anybody wants to talk to you, uh, what kind of people do you want to talk to, and where do they reach you, and uh, you know how do they if they want to do some business with Workspace, you know, just give the quick rundown on on that in case anybody wants to to follow up. Yeah, happy to. Um, the first group I'll say is if you're you're a founder or you're running a business and you're interested in this Alpine story or or Alan the founder story or mine and just want to talk to a different kind of partner, please reach out to me. The second one is you know if you're in the commercial real estate space and, and interested in just taking a look at some innovative software for property and portfolio management, we're we're a growing business. Just a call. You know our website is goworkspace.com. You can reach out to us there. And then the last group is like, hey, if you uh, are interested in the kind of culture we're building, you've heard the sort of stuff I'm talking about. And you're like, yeah, that place resonates with me. And you have any sort of SaaS experience, be it customer support or an engineer, for sure. Um, you can still go to goworkspace.com and fill out a sheet. You can you can get in touch with me, uh, Vivek Kartha on LinkedIn, and we'll go from there. But I uh, appreciate everyone who listened to this. And hopefully I uh, I added some some thoughts to your arsenal. Good to have you, man. Thanks for spending time. Thanks, Elijah. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. You can see the show notes and more links from today's episode at leadersofb2b.com.